0: you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere nearby you in one of the seat backs in front of you. Um, you'll find the book of Colossians on page 924 of that hardback Bible. If you're new to reading the Bible, we are glad that you're here. You may find it helpful to know that the bigger bold numbers are the chapters And the smaller numbers are the verses of what will be referred to. This morning we're in Colossians 1, and we're going to consider this morning verses 15 through 20. Let's hear God's word together. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray and let's ask this Lord Jesus to help us understand his word. Father, we bow our lives before you this morning, recognizing what we have just heard is not the words of men, but the words of God. So help us to receive it as it is. Help us by the ministry of your spirit to not merely hear sound waves reverberating around in this room, but help us to hear as it is your truth insofar it would pierce our souls, it would bring about the sort of faith and change that only you can bring. Lord, we pray that we would see your son, our Lord Jesus, as he is. And if in any way we have a diminished view of him or a lesser view than who he is and what you've revealed to us in your word, Lord, would you convict us and raise our eyes to see his supremacy over all things, his sufficiency in all things. Father, I pray that you would help me, your servant this morning, to be a faithful servant, to take things that are mysterious and wonderful here in your word, to make them plain and clear that they might not be compromised or distorted in any way, but held up in all of their glory, that we might gaze upon this Christ, that we might know Him and rest in Him, and that we might find this glorious peace that's promised to us through the reconciliation that He brings. Lord, work in us that we might be a people who gladly confesses Christ, sees Him as triumphant, worthy to be trusted in, and the one whom we seek to Glorify with every life and breath that you've given to us. We ask in His name, Amen. Amen. What is Christianity? What are the words that you would use to sum up the essence of what it means to be a Christian? Perhaps you would begin to speak of grace, or maybe you would turn and talk about the Bible. Perhaps you would launch out and begin to talk about the importance of goodness and truth and beauty. Perhaps you would talk about Christianity and the great need to have a Christian worldview. Or perhaps you would go straight to the cross and begin to talk about a cross. Certainly, I think each of those words and those concepts are biblical. And they must certainly be included in any such conversation But as important as each one of those images, as important as each one of those concepts are, they are not ultimately the essence of Christianity. Christianity is Christ. And we must never think of him as merely the mailman who delivers to us news, even good news. Even news about grace. Even news about a cross. Matters of love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Those images, those concepts, as central as they are, they only find their true meaning and their true substance in who Christ is. He is the gospel. And the salvation that he brings is not just a salvation that he announces detached from him, but a salvation that is to be united to him. That he is the substance of what it means to be saved. And so without him, there really is no good news. Without Christ, we have a flimsy understanding of what grace really is. No matter how grace-filled, gospel-driven, or Bible-based we may desire to be, without Christ, all of that is not Christian. The problem at this church, Colossae, was... A similar problem. There's a problem of obscuring and even diminishing the person of Christ. And that's a that's a serious concern. Because if Christ is not seen as he is, if Christ is not seen as supreme, as preeminent, as sufficient, then we wrongly will then seek out some other supplementary doctrine or experience to fill the gaps. Christianity does not make sense apart from a clear view of Christ. And our text this morning in Colossians 1 reveals that even our earthly existence, however many years you are given on this earth, that too will not make sense apart from a clear understanding of Christ. Colossians 1, verses 15 and even on into 23 is given towards this exaltation and this grand declaration of who this Jesus is. So whether this was some sort of creedal statement, or even some sort of ancient hymn that Paul is referring to, it is filled with glorious Christology. It is filled with wonderful doctrine about our Lord Jesus. In the structure of verses 15 through 20, They're controlled by one phrase. It's this word that's repeated. Maybe you noticed it. It's in verses 15, and then it repeats in verse 18. It's this word, firstborn. Everything that Paul has to say in these five verses, it flows from this understanding of who Christ is and this great understanding that he is the firstborn. This demarcation of Christ being the firstborn is the controlling image that really sets off the structure of the passage here into these two sections so that we might see Christ as superior over all creation, and then, verses 18 through 20, superior over the new creation. Because he is, therefore this. So let's consider... How- how this works itself out in verses 15 through 17, is Paul insists that Christ is superior over all creation. Look back. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Notice the logic and the flow of what Paul is stating and reinforcing. Notice how this paragraph is broken off by a doctrinal claim, and then this word, for, in verse 16. Who Christ is gives way to why it matters. And what does Paul say? Well, he says that Christ is the firstborn over all creation, that he is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, he has the ability and he has the authority not only to create all things, but to determine the ultimate purpose of all that he has created. Friend, right off the top, what this means to you is so important. Do you want to know why you exist? Do you want to understand why your heart actually beats as it does right now? why blood actually flows through your body and neurons fire, this text has the answer. Likewise, do you want to know why the wind blows in the trees? Do you want to know why the galaxies shine bright against a black night sky? Do you want to know why the sea crashes upon the sand? This portion of scripture will tell you. The answer to those questions to answer them rightly, is that we must see Christ as he is. Notice the claims that are here in this first section. There's two of them. The first is that Christ is the firstborn over all creation. This is really the dominant controlling image that breaks down everything that Paul is going to say about Jesus and why it matters. Now, within the Old Testament, the repetition and the emphasis there is that within every Israelite family... Authority is passed down and given to this firstborn. Now, not as we would imagine chronologically, because the title of firstborn has less to do about the chronological birth order and more the title of authority that is passed down to the next generation. That one who is the firstborn, regardless of birth order, is considered the heir of that family. And in Deuteronomy 21, that heir, the firstborn, is given a double portion of the inheritance and recognized as the one who is the one who will continue on this family. Whether this is David, not the oldest, actually the youngest, would be the firstborn. Or whether this was any other Jewish family. There was one who would be the firstborn carrying this title of the heir, the one who is the the rightful guard of the inheritance. So to say that Christ is the firstborn over all creation is to say he's the honored one. It is to say that he's the privileged one. It's to say that he is the heir of all that he is responsible for in his inheritance. Meaning he's not a part of creation, but over it and continues to sustain it. But there's a second claim. He's not only the firstborn. Paul also said he's actually the image of the invisible God. Now, I think if we're familiar with our Bibles, we understand from Scripture that Christ is in his incarnation, when he was born as a man, that he comes as the God-man, and as the God-man, he reveals to us the Father. He's the image of God. Certainly true. But to launch out in that direction from this text would be inconsistent as to the point Paul is making. Notice the emphasis in verse 15 is that Christ is the image of God, not in his fleshly image incarnate state, but pre-incarnate. He eternally exists as the image of God at the point of creation. Now, while false teachers in this city of Colossae might be rising up to dilute and diminish who the person of Christ is, saying he's necessary but not sufficient, Paul writes to proclaim who he is, that he is most certainly sufficient, not only because he's the firstborn, but because he is the image of the invisible God, and that all things exist because of him and through him. Now certainly, the scriptural teaching and concern over the person of Christ has perhaps been one of the greatest battles fought in church history. Who is Jesus? Who is this God-man? How do we understand what the scriptures proclaim? Certainly our Nicene Creed And much labor gone in to define these particular terms as to what the the scriptures teach. That he is God from God. That he's light from light. That he's true God from true God. Begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made that were made. It's a portion of the Nicene Creed concerning this Jesus. Summarizing much of what we see in scripture, specifically Hebrews 1 Verse 3, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So from this, we can be sure that there is no God in heaven who's unlike Jesus. Do you realize that? Whatever idea of God you might hold in your brain If he's unlike Jesus, then you have a wrong understanding of who this God is. At the same time, you could emphasize the opposite. This Jesus is none other than the divine because he is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn, over all creation, the image of the invisible God. Okay, so what? Why does this matter? Well, there's a couple implications Paul is driving at. The doctrine... And then the therefore. First implication is that, well, creation exists then because of Christ. If this is true, then this has to be true. If he is the firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God, then creation as we know it exists because of Christ. All things. Do you notice that repeated word here? All, all, all. As I understand it, all things includes... Everything, every animate and inanimate thing that's ever been created exists because of Christ. And Paul is quick to add kind of this parenthetical statement. That includes things visible and invisible. Even the heavenly forces that we cannot see with the human eye, but that we most certainly know they are there because God's word reveals to us. All things were created through him and for him. And as we see as we're, we'll get into chapter 2, this is particularly important to some of the false teaching that was rising up, saying Christ is sufficient, but these spiritual powers, these hosts of wickedness, there's some things you need to be sure that you're doing and not doing if you want to have power over even that realm. Paul says, let's just get something straight, straight away. He is superior over all creation, even those thrones, dominions, and rulers, and authorities. Because he's going to go on to say in verse 15 of chapter 2 that he disarmed, these same words, rulers and authorities. Put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. John 1.3 certainly rings in our ears. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All creation exists because of Christ. But Paul says something else there. If this is true, then this is also true. That would also mean that creation exists not just because of Christ, but notice the language, for Christ. All creation exists for Christ. Why is he created? Well, all things were created through him and for him. This gets at the matter of purpose. To display and to declare the excellencies of his worth. Think of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The marks of his glory and his artistry are are all around us. Think of the smallest sea creature that exists to the brightest galaxy that all creation exists for him to tell of his worth, to point us to the glories of this one who's created all things. The heavens cannot but declare the glory of God because they are his craftsmanship and the fingerprints of his craftsmanship point us back to the excellencies of who he is, that they not only exist because of him and for him, but they are sustained and held together in him. Someone who loved this concept someone who loved to think about this very reality often and very deeply and write very well on it, is Jonathan Edwards. He believed that the universe is full of images of divine things as full as a language is of words. Do you think of creation in that way? That it's full of divine things? As full as a language is of words. Friends, I fear that too often in our world that is dominated, whether we realize it or not, by materialism. Even if we profess Christ, we think we believe in spiritual realities that happen to just be a veneer laid over a physical world. And yet the Bible would say that's not true at all. This physical world exists by Christ and for Christ, to point to the spiritual realities of who he is. For him. Edward loves to write about this and to think about it. Where he would draw out the tiniest details of everything. From spiders, like it or not. To silkworms. He has essays on silkworms as he would go out and observe creation and wonder and marvel as how they point to the glory of Christ. Rainbows, roses, they all pour forth the knowledge about Christ and his ways. For example, Edwards, for him, the rising and the setting of the sun was a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ, who is the true light of the world. He saw sunrises and sunsets, not just beauty in and of themselves, but that that beauty points towards something. This was created for him, to think upon his death and his resurrection. For Edwards, milk is not just milk. Of course it's not, as you begin to read it. For him, he saw in its whiteness that it reminds us of the purity of God's word and why it fitly represents the word of God, think First Peter, because of its sweetness and nourishing nature and where we grow thereby. Next morning, when you pull it out of the fridge, this is milk unto the glory of God because of what it testifies and who it testifies of. So what this means is that when we gaze at the stars at night or stand in awe of the rolling clouds that move in throughout the day, if we read our Bibles rightly, when we see those realities, we are meant to think of not just clouds and stars, but the steadfast love of God. Because the psalmist says in Psalm 36.5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Yesterday as massive clouds swept through our region and then rolled out and blue sky behind them. We would be well served and good learners of God's creation if we saw that and not just stood in awe of His existence and His creative ability. But that reminds me of your Faithfulness, your steadfast love, because it extends even to there. Or if we read the psalmist well, that when we look and we stand at the base of the magnificent Sierras, or we get out over Lake Tahoe where it gets really dark really fast, we are meant to think in those moments of the righteousness of God. Because in the next verse, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like the great deep Man and beast, you save, O Yahweh. God has a created order, and he's created in order to communicate himself. Creation exists for Christ, to tell the wonders of his worth. But let's take this reality a step further. If all things exist by him and for him, That would include you. That would include me. You were created to honor Him, to reflect Him, to glorify Him, to rejoice in Him. You were created to know Him as Creator, as Sustainer, as Savior, rejoicing in Christ as the heir of all things. Do you? Do you exist for Him? Do you recognize that you exist for him? If you're unsure of that, I would encourage you to think well about what your life might look like if you began to discover more of who this Christ is and what and how he's created you for a purpose. How might your life look different? What might that mean if you recognize I was created by God for Christ? It's a wonderful conversation to have with maybe somebody who invited you here, a neighbor or a coworker. It's a wonderful conversation to have with one of your parents as you begin to walk through that. What would my life look like if I truly believed that I was created by Christ and for Christ? Well, He's superior over all creation. That's not the only thing Paul says. This word firstborn, it comes up again. And what it tells us is that he is superior over all new creation. Verse 18. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying that in the first creation, all things came into being and remain as they are because Christ created with authority and ability. And the scriptures announce that there's not just a first creation, but there is actually something called a new creation. Because of the creative authority and ability of Christ, he is bringing forth a new creation, which is called his church. You see the claim? Christ is the firstborn from the dead and the head of the church. Therefore, he has the ability to rule and reconcile all things to himself. That's where Paul is going. He's the firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? Well, it means two things. We are ruled and sustained by Christ, and we are reconciled and secured through Christ. Consider the first thing that Paul says. We are ruled and sustained by Christ. Again, Paul returns to this controlling image of Christ as the firstborn. And this time he says he's not the firstborn over all creation, but he says he's also the firstborn from the dead. Meaning, all those who rise to life in the new creation, he is first. He is preeminent. He is the heir of all of them. He will have the place of supremacy from inception to consummation. And this right here is one of the clearest texts in our Bibles concerning the resurrection of the dead as this revelation of this one great movement in which God is raising his people to be a new creation, amidst a creation that is marred by sin. He creates, and he recreates. And that recreation is called the church, his body, his people. 1 Corinthians 15 is a wonderful portion in our scriptures to mine the, these depths a little bit further. Listen to Paul's teaching in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The Apostle John holds up the same truth in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. From Jesus Christ the faithful witness The firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood. He is the firstborn of the dead. He pulls on this image and stretches it a bit further in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, referring to Christ as the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God which refers not to the first creation in Genesis 1, but the new creation as the result of Christ's death and resurrection. In this place of supremacy over the new creation, Christ is shown to be the head of the body, the church. This is an important term. Because here, defined by Scripture, headship carries with it not just a position of authority, which we somewhat inherently and intuitively know. And sometimes, reluctantly and unfortunately, that aspect of the word of headship gets all the airplay, but there's something else that's also massively important if we want to define words according to the Bible. Because headship is not only authority. Headship is also provision. It is also nurturing. It also caring for Authority has everything to do with ruling and leading in such a way as to those who are under this headship are cared for. Paul would write to the Ephesians the same idea, drawn out with a little more clarity. Ephesians 4, verses 15 through 16, he instructs, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him, who is our head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul is saying that Christ as the head ensures that the body has what it needs to be healthy. He is the head of the church. So let's say it very plainly. To be a Christian means that you are ruled and sustained by Christ. Your life is under his care and your life is under his watch. And so this not only secures your protection, but it also ensures your nourishment. It ensures your spiritual provision. Think of all the images that we are given in scripture that testify of Christ's nourishment for our spiritual well-being. What comes to mind? For me, at the top of the list would be that he is revealed as the Good Shepherd. How often does that image come up? How he not only leads, but he leads in such a way that his sheep are going to be led to green pastures and still waters. That he not only protects, but he provides. To be ruled by God means that you're like a tree planted by streams of water that yields abundant fruit even in seasons of trial and affliction because that's where he plants his trees to bear his fruit, by streams of living water. That same image of living water, Christ promises to be the fountain of living water that gives life to parched souls. He assures us that he is the bread of life filled with rich Old Testament imagery reminding us that he is able to sustain weary pilgrims throughout their wilderness journey until they reach the promised land. This is who Christ is. Christian, do you not see and do you not know that your soul must be nourished and that Christ is the sufficient one who delights to do so? that he promises to strengthen weary faith, that he invites weary and heavy-laden people to come to him to see that his burden is easy, his yoke is light, that he gives rest for souls. Christ is the firstborn from the dead and the head of the body. Therefore, he has the ability to rule and sustain us. He has the authority to rule and sustain us. But further still, he also says that we, through this same Christ, are reconciled and secure through him. The pre-incarnate Son took on flesh, and in doing so, notice what Paul connects here. He fulfills the role of the temple in which the presence of God has been pleased to dwell. Perhaps as you've been reading through your Old Testament this year, you've found various places in Scripture where the tabernacle or eventually the temple was established and filled with the presence of God. And think upon the purpose of that tabernacle or temple And all that it communicated, not only of God, but for the people of God and the way that they accessed him. And then God communicating, this is where I am pleased to fill so that I might dwell with my people and they might dwell with me. In the Old Testament, the glory of God filled the temple. And now in an unfolding redemptive history, Christ, the fullness of God, dwells bodily. But now... God's presence is no longer just filling an earthly temple, but Christ, being the fullness of God, He dwells and He is satisfied that He fulfills the temple that He represents. The Old Testament, the temple was the place of God's mediating presence. This was the place where sinful people could come by faith, have their sins atoned for through the promise and provision of God. But as Christ is the God-man, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, he is able to mediate this peace-making presence through the atonement of his sacrifice offered once and for all. Now this does not mean universal salvation as some might misconstrue it, but complete salvation. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. To that extent, The curse extends not only to our lives as humanity, but we know if we read Romans well that all creation groans under the weight of this curse and it longs for the revealing of the sons of God because in that day all creation will be set free from the curse of sin and the corruption that it's brought and it will be a fully restored creation. But how is this great reconciliation brought about. Paul speaks of it. He says that it's most certainly in Christ. Does he just say, be reconciled? Well, in the first creation, he spoke, and it was. But in the new creation, what Paul tells us is that this reconciliation comes not simply by speaking forth, but by dying a death that he makes peace through the blood of his cross. Now, we should have known this was coming because God promised and foretold it through the prophets. This would be the means by which his people would be reconciled. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him... Was the chastisement that brought us peace? By his wounds, we're healed. Lasting peace, genuine reconciliation are impossible without the payment of a debt and the satisfaction of justice. True peace cannot exist without justice being satisfied and the debt being paid. The offense must be offset. And the debt must be cleared, or else you don't have peace. You might have a pardon, but you do not have full, complete reconciliation. Do you know what it means to be at peace with God? Do you know what it would mean to be able to stand before this God in majestic holiness and not fear judgment? To stand before God who sees everything with perfect clarity, who knows even the motives of your heart, that despite your best intentions to hide or diminish or to justify, that to stand before this God means to stand before him as he is and as you really are. Can you imagine standing before that scene with perfect peace? Not fearing a thing. Not looking over your shoulder. Not trying to recount a certain day or a certain tone or a certain word or a certain action. Complete peace. That's the sort of peace that the Bible speaking of here. You probably know this, but the plain facts of the matter is that your sin has actually put you at odds with God. The language of scripture is that you're actually a child of wrath, awaiting an eternal and righteous judgment. And to do nothing about this is to ignore or deny the most tragic thing that would ever happen to you. Do you know what that is? It's not the consequences of what you've done. It's not the repercussions of what you failed to do. Though that may be tragic, the most tragic thing ever that could ever happen to a human being is eternal conscious torment, what the Bible calls hell. And to ignore or deny the reality of who we are and who God is, and just to leave it in that category alone, is to bring upon yourself what God calls his righteous judgment. But Christ has been sent By the Father to reconcile sinners to himself. Instead of justice, those who trust in Christ get mercy as the punishment that they deserve falls upon Christ. And now justice is satisfied and the debt is paid. And what God promises in his word For even when we sit back and say, I don't know, he promises that there is no sin too scandalous, that there is no stain too deep that he will not gladly and fully remove. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those... who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He goes on pleading. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And friends, this is what we would say to you this morning as the people of God. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. All of that is saying the same thing. The offense and scandal of sin is pacified through the payment of justice offered up upon the cross of Christ. Peace with God is possible and only possible because the justice of God is satisfied upon the Son of For the sins of his people. Christ, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, brings reconciliation to his people through the blood of his cross. Would you ever have imagined then that a man dying on a cross was the means for sinners to be reconciled to God? Have you ever just meditated upon that reality? This is God's plan to reconcile his people unto himself, the blood of Christ upon the cross. Think about the cross and look at it. At first glance, it seems to speak nothing of wisdom, nothing of power, nothing of justice or righteousness. Yet, hanging there, what is Christ doing? Well, we know from Scripture that at that moment, he's actually crushing the head of a serpent. We know that he's binding up the strong man. He's driving out the prince of this world. He's destroying death. He's putting to shame the powers of darkness. We know that in his death, he's turning the foul stench of sin into the fragrant aroma of righteousness for all his people. That he washes stains, that he binds up wounds, and that he's setting captives free. And through the reconciling reconciling death of Christ, we not only have reconciliation, we have a transformed view of who this God is. Do you remember the question we started with? What is Christianity? Friend, if you do not answer Christ, then your view of God should terrify you. Apart from Christ, whatever you imagine God to be, even if you take his word and put up upon him and say, this is who you said you are, and you do not layer upon that the reality of Christ, your thoughts of God should terrify you. Whoever you imagine this God to be, as biblical as your answer might be, detached from Christ, that should strike fear in all of us to just simply read that God is powerful, that he's full of justice, that he is full of perfect knowledge, righteousness, and eternal. Apart from Christ, friends, those are terrifying attributes. But Christ, and the reconciliation that he brings, he brings not just simply peace, but comfort and assurance as to how we think about and now relate to this God who is unchanging in all of those attributes. Richard Sibbs is helpful here talking about this reconciliation and thinking along these lines, he says, This makes all things in God amiable. For now, we can think of his justice and not fear. It's fully satisfied in Christ. We can think of his power with comfort, for it serves our good to subdue our enemies. There is no attribute, though it may be terrible in itself, but it is sweet and amiable because God looks graciously on us in His beloved. We must take God not as considered abstractly and simply, but God in Christ, for other notions of God are terrible. God in Christ, reconciled to this God through the blood of His cross, and He is supreme over all the new creation. That means there is no sin outside of his ability to cleanse and to forgive. There is no offense, there is no shame, there is no guilt that he cannot reconcile through the blood of his cross. And friend, for you to hold back this morning, for some reason and say, yeah, but that doesn't apply here. For you to think that your sin is too foul, or that he might be unwilling, that is to contradict everything you've heard this morning from God's word. The word of God testifies that Christ is the firstborn from the dead and the head of his body. He has the ability and the authority to reconcile all things to himself, even your sin. His cross is the means for guilty people and a guilty conscience to be relieved from a sin-stained past. That's why this emphasis upon Scripture is to announce this good news and then to say, repent, turn from your unbelief, and turn in belief towards Christ, and rest in the promise of Scripture. That would sound something like just even fumbling through very simple words of saying, Jesus, I need your cross. I long to be reconciled to you. My creator, through the blood of your son. This morning we gather on the first day of the week to exalt this risen Lord Jesus. And so we gladly confess as his people that everything exists by him and for him and through him. And for this reason, that's why we make much of him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. All things exist by him and through him. And in him, his people find reconciliation and genuine peace. Listen to the wise and pastoral counsel of Robert Murray McShane. If this is all true of what we've said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in his mighty care. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Christianity is Christ. Let's look to Him. Oh, Father, how greatly we need to hear not only of the glories of Your name and of Your worth, but of the glories of Your Son. Lord, continue to work in us, This spiritual wisdom, this knowledge that is your son, that we might see you, that we might see your creation, that we might see ourselves in the light of his glorious splendor. Father, we pray that you would continue to make Christ plain before our eyes, that the sweetness of who he is and what he's accomplished would continue to bring us back to the great promise of the gospel the assurance of grace, the sufficiency of our scriptures, and the rejoicing in the world to come. Father, help us to see everything illuminated by the glory of your Son. For the praise of his grace, we pray. Amen.